Yeah, I wanted to start doing this for for years, and actually, this particular podcast. Um, you can use that mic, by the way, test out and stuff. Um, it, it, it'll pull to like you don't feel like feel free to. This is just such a nice like band room. I don't want to like <laughs> mess anything up. This is no. beautiful. Oh, yeah. thank you. Yeah, but as far as podcasting goes, I've had the idea for the songwriter's therapy for maybe like three or four years, and I wanted to do it a long time ago. But I, when I lived in the Bay Area, I just um, it was a little less accessible to the people that I really wanted to talk to, at least to start with, like like you even, you know. Um, just anyone from Stockton. Um, not that this, I want this to necessarily be a Stockton podcast. I just, uh, this is like my home and like my comfort zone, you know? So it's when you're starting something new, especially as a like creative person, sometimes you have, you want that safety net of like, of, uh, people that you could depend on, you know, yeah, that ob family. Obviously you want to like kind of, kind of come from an area of your roots yeah where where everything kind of starts and everything kind of feels great mm -hmm. and i i understand yeah yeah for sure but yeah i'm i'm also getting into it because i can i commute a lot mm -hmm. and well i've commuted a lot ever since i moved to the bay area and like you know out there you sit in traffic for an hour when it should take you like 20 minutes exactly um so i listened to a lot of podcasts and so I, there's a lot of podcasts that i uh, i really enjoyed and i was like I'm going to do that. I can talk, you know, <laughs> I know how to talk. I think we all know how to talk <laughs> yeah. to an extent. Yeah. I feel like a lot of us like, like to, uh, like to talk as well, especially like musicians and stuff. I think that's kind of, um, kind of, uh, comes natural to us in a way where even if we're like introverts, we're, we're just communicators. Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the podcast is songwriters therapy. And I always open every episode. We're starting, by the way. Oh, oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah. Do you okay. feel comfortable with the the microphone? I actually do. This yeah. is this is fine. Um, okay. I kind of feel like I have to direct into the microphone. This is years and years of performing. Like, you kind of get into this mindset where you have to like make sure your mouth is turned directly in front of the microphone. But yeah, yeah, yeah I I appreciate it. I think every episode so far has started off with. Um, actually, I'm gonna adjust these mics before we we really get started. Okay. Um, you'll hear a little bit of noise. I just want to make sure that we're, cause they are very, uh, not sensitive, whatever the opposite of sensitive is, uh, subtle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, every episode people are probably tired of me going like, um, giving directions on how to use the microphone, but I always say like a 45 degree angle is the best. Okay. Yeah. 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 Some people are like back here and just think it's all right and it's fine, but you know, I think you're at a good. Yeah, I, I think I'm in the sweet spot. I'm in. Yeah, the, I'm in the zone. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So uh, songwriters therapy is the podcast. Um, and I like to open up the episode officially by asking uh, why you're on a podcast called songwriters therapy. Why am I on a podcast called songwriters therapy? It's um, the best way I can put it is that I've been. I, I got called out last episode. Yeah. And I felt like... <laughs> last I should, few episodes, dude. I, I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, a, a good amount of my friends mentioned your uh, podcast to me and they yeah. were like, you should go on. And I'm like, what, what what will I have to say? And they're like, I don't know. Like, you're you're a musician, Gio. You, you yeah. seem cool. You should, you should do it. And I'm just like, okay, so... Why not? Let's 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 talk about like the reason why I write songs. Yeah, yeah, that's why we're here. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, specifically, uh, I I feel like we've even chatted about you from episode one. I bet we, I bet me and Cheyenne, even maybe if it was off mic, we might have said like, "Oh, Geo should be on this podcast." Oh and no! And <laughs> you know what? I think I think one of the things that so many people love about um, about you as a songwriter and musician is. Um, Number one, I, I, I just think the scene right now in Stockton is so alive and so healthy um, because people are super supportive. Um, and I think you're one of those people like, who, who's supportive of everyone in every genre. Like I see you like going to like punk shows and, and acoustic things and indie things and whatever, or, or you're at the shows that are all of those things together. But also you specifically, and what I think people enjoy is you're bringing this uh, this different kind of like 
blues influenced uh version of music that like a lot of people who maybe been punk or hardcore people or indie rock people um haven't been exposed to and you're like fusing it with um with punk and with all these other like rock genres that um that we we love you know and so uh, i think it's really just like a breath of fresh air i think a lot of people love that about you well it's i don't know like when i when i think about like me bringing like blues into like into like punk rock or Mm -hmm. into an indie rock setting or uh what may you what how you however you see it yeah it's more of just like i don't know it's my way of just kind of telling my story explaining how music is to me Mm -hmm. when i first started playing guitar it was it was kind of like just i just learned three chords and (laughs) i I realized that blues is three chords and yeah and a scale and then i kind of just took it in the directions of like bands that i liked Mm -hmm. because i you know when i think of guitar driven music growing up i listened to like a lot of like soft rock and r&b yeah and that's due to my mother mm-hmm. you know she was really into like artists like the police and mm-hmm. you know Cher and celine dion and whitney houston i can keep going on and yeah. on about like <laughs> the amount of r&b i listened to between ages like seven to twelve mm-hmm. and then i think i think i was like 13 when i heard Jimi hendrix play hey joe yeah and when i heard that i was like that's rad and then uh, another thing that made it super rad was to find out that he he was a it was a black guy. I was mm-hmm. like, what? Like what? Like that's possible. Mm-hmm. And you know, as the years went by, and I learned more and more about music. Yeah, you know, blues was the genre that you know the guitar players were people who like looked like me visually, mm-hmm. but it was very genuine and it was very pure. So yeah, yeah. I mean, and also. Uh, understanding like the the sliver of music history that i that i understand so many rock musicians and well i mean rock as a genre stemmed from blues from what from my understanding right yes like blues and jazz and then and then you have a lot of these like british invasion bands like the beatles and the rolling stones and and uh what you know yardbirds and the, the people who went into like led zeppelin and eric clapton they're yeah. all just like worshiping the blues and blues musicians and 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 trying to um write songs based on the things they've learned from growing up listening to the blues you know and i i think there's this very common thread or or loop in uh you know rock music um where you even see that in punk you know if if blues is you know the the three chords the, like the one four five four type patterns that's punk rock too yeah you ex- know what i mean exactly like especially like a lot of people don't really consider them punk nowadays mm-hmm. but you know think of the stooges yeah a lot of people don't know this but iggy pop was in a he was in a blues band he was a drummer in a blues band mm-hmm. and he was the oldest member of the stooges in terms of age wow he was like the older guy. Yeah, I didn't so, know any of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he taught Scott Ashton, which was Ron Ashton's brother. Ron Ashton played guitar in the mm-hmm. Stooges, and then later on he played lead guitar in the Stooges. But he taught Scott Ashton, the drummer, yeah, um, how to play drums. He taught him three simple drum beats. That's so cool. And then it kind of takes off from there. Mm-hmm. But um, all those guys were into the blues, and mm-hmm. when you look at the history of the blues, it's just it's just simple chord simple instrumentation and there's a story about it yeah and blues was one of the first genres that talked about kind of a lot of like relevant issues from um like domestic relationships Mm -hmm. to to how people deal with depression yeah and anxiety like blues was one of those genres that kind of opened up a lot of doors about talking about mental health yeah and a lot of people don't realize that because you know, some somewhere between the sixties to the the early eighties it kinda got lost into this mm-hmm. guitar riff driven mess. Yeah. And it kinda outshined what the music was really about. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that um just like that idea of blues it's really the the beginning of the of popular song in a way where it's not just uh, standards. Like before it was standards and you'd buy sheet music and you'd sing like 
you are my sunshine or something that everyone mm -hmm. everyone knew and didn't have like a lot of uh, story behind it. And then you go into this like uh, very individualistic. I'm I'm like a songwriter that feels something and I need to get that out to the world. I, I think that's like a very common theme in this podcast. Any songwriter of any, any like style that we've had on here has been, you know, the reason I'm writing songs is because like I have this thing inside of me that I have to get out. And, and I feel like that um, definitely is something that was like ignited by by blue, early blues musicians, you know. It definitely was. Um, but kind of fast forward to, mm -hmm. I think, 2012. That's yeah. when I really, <laughs> I guess that's when I really started like writing songs and kind mm -hmm. of taking off of it. It was fast forward by me being in my early 20s and being lonely and depressed. Yeah. Yeah. So um, about 2012, you're in your early 20s, but maybe we could back up a little bit. When was the first time where you, you said to yourself, like, I'm going to uh, pick up an instrument and, and make mu new music that hasn't been heard before, whether it was like writing words to it or not, or just, just wanting to pick up something? Uh, I would say a couple of years back uh, from 2012, so yeah. 2010, like... Mm -hmm. um, I was forced into taking this guitar class by my mm -hmm. best friend at Delta. Yeah. And um, at the time I played bass, I'd, I'd been playing bass for about four or five years since high school. Yeah. Did you um, play it in high school? Like, uh... I was never really in a band. I just oh. learned songs. Oh, okay. So just at home. Type. Yeah. I was, I was like most musicians out mm -hmm. there. I was more of like a bedroom guy. Like, yeah. I just heard a song that I liked on the radio or, mm -hmm. you know, listening to CDs and I kind of just kind of plucked out yeah. what I thought the melody was on the bass and then kind of went from there. But mm -hmm. um, the, the, the songwriting aspect didn't really begin until like I started taking that guitar class because yeah. um, I had like a little red journal, which I still mm -hmm. do have and I know exactly where it is in my bedroom. Yeah. And I think, and, and I filled that thing up full of, like poems and lyrics mm -hmm. and story ideas. And those became like the first series of songs that I started writing. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. And, um, and, uh, from there you, you have this like, um, kind of like different life now, once you start like writing songs, what, what was it like going from, you know, taking this guitar class to, uh, to the point where you're trying to like perform these songs that you've written in your red notebook. It was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is the journey. I haven't asked anyone about this, but this is like the, this is the interesting part of being a songwriter. It was so uncomfortable. It was like, because when you, when you write a song, mm -hmm. you truly, when you write a song, you don't have the, the intent to perform it. Mm -hmm. It's more of like something you're doing, you know, for yourself. It's, yeah. it's literally songwriter's therapy. You're, yeah. you're, yeah. you're kind of taking your thoughts, you're putting them down on paper and then mm -hmm. you're kind of analyzing what do they mean if they have a meaning or, um, what feelings do they present in front of you? Yeah. And doing that in front of a crowd is 50 times harder. Even to mm -hmm. this day, like I, I go out and I perform like, at least a couple times a month on a, a random Friday or Saturday night. And it yeah. still, it feels nerve wracking yeah. when it comes to original songs. Covers yeah. are easy, but when it comes to stuff that I've written, mm -hmm. I still get that feeling of like, yeah, you're at your most vulnerable. At exactly. That point. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, can, can you imagine going to like a reg regular therapist and you're discussing your relationship or your family or something? And then in that same therapy room, there's like a crowd of people drinking coffee and, and trying to talk over you. <laughs> oh man. Like I, I, I can't imagine that. So the, there is a still a part of me that has like great empathy, mm -hmm. especially going to open mic. Like, yeah. That's one of the reasons why I still go to open mic just to see the look on those performance spaces when they're putting their own words, their own yeah. thoughts out there and seeing how people will respond. But I have great empathy for that mm -hmm. because it's like, I've been there and yeah. I, I totally understand what you are going through. It's, yeah. it's not an amazing feeling, but when people clap and they respond positively mm -hmm. or if, if you get any sort of reaction, yeah. you know, I think that's a win. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I've said it a lot on this podcast. Uh, like 
the open mic scene here in Stockton, I think it's like really good right now. And one of the things that I love the most is uh, seeing someone who's maybe performing for the very first time and they're bringing a song that they've written themselves and uh, and just the support that everyone everyone gives them. And I love seeing that spark, regardless of how um, confident they are or how practiced they are, that that like spark of the first time playing and seeing like, oh man, this person is onto something. They play, they, they need to keep coming out. They need to keep playing. And then eventually like they'll get that confidence. They'll, they'll, they'll get that practice in. Um, and I just love seeing that growth and, and that potential to grow. Exactly. Like I, I, I just, just like you, I enjoy mm-hmm. seeing it as well. Yeah. And one of the, the cool things I kind of like about it is actually seeing players not only the they take the the lyrical the poetic the Mm -hmm. the the vocal portion of their the musicality to that next level but yeah also like seeing them kind of you know experiment and i think that's one Mm -hmm. of the biggest reasons why i write songs is because there's no hard rules yeah you can do whatever you want both with your lyrics and then both with your music Mm -hmm. yeah definitely yeah i i mean i think I, i maybe this is just me as a songwriter who who's like really into songwriting i think it's one of like the ultimate um forms of expression uh being a songwriter because you're playing with words you're playing with sounds um you're giving a performance which is like kind of a visual um although like uh, you know maybe there's some people who take that to more uh more of an artistic expression you know pop musicians or or people like David Bowie who really like who really know yeah. how to put on a show and make it artistic, you know. Um, I I love that. I actually wish I could be more visual um, with how I'm expressing myself musically. And I think today we have more tools to do that with like the internet, with like video and um, Melanie. That this is. I feel like a really old person saying this, but uh, Melanie, my girlfriend, has recently gotten me into TikTok. Hey. And like TikTok is super, uh, um, they're, they do a lot of like lip syncing, but just that platform itself is really interesting to me. Number one, cause they have a lot of really cool editing features, but, um, it's different than YouTube where it's very, it's very like restrained to like, here's one minute, do your thing. Um, and so I, I've made one post where I'm doing a cover song, but I've, I'm thinking more about like, how can I, how can I take my music and make it into something visual and fit it into one minute you know i think that's kind of where the 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 bridge between like taking it to the next level kind of lies and yeah as as time goes on like nowadays you kind of see it like when you go to a concert Mm -hmm. you you they it's not only just music and musicians playing with their instruments or interacting with their software or Mm -hmm. whatever they may be doing or putting their art out there you, you see a menagerie of different things. You know, artists yeah. have dancers. Artists kind of have, like, huge screens set up mm-hmm. where they're projecting images of what they think their songs are about. Or Yeah. And it's, it's, it's going to that level where it's going to merge together eventually. You're going to have to have some heavy visual aspects yeah. to the art that you're portraying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even think it has to be, like, dynamic art i've seen some really good set design at concerts one band um that i saw a while ago the front bottoms they had this kind of like uh living room set set up with kind of like an old like couch that you'd inherit and like an old lamp and like books and everything and it just really set the feeling visually for the concert that they put on and i really enjoyed that and they even had you know uh the front bottoms have uh you know the core band and i think they have like people who play trumpet and other people in the band who come on for one or two songs and when they weren't playing they'd be hanging out on the on the couch and stuff like that so it was kind of like here's a group of friends who are in their like jam space with a couch and a box of records and like when people need to get up and play they do and uh i think that that was a really cool way to like visually um set the stage for this like uh this sonic um you know, presentation that they are giving. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with that. And I honestly, the only concerts that I've been to that where I've seen some sort of additional visual element added Mm -hmm. to the, 
the musical or sonic performance has been like bands like ACDC and Iron Maiden mm-hmm. and stuff like that and yeah. Black Sabbath. Yeah. Which is cool, don't get me wrong, but it's it's just that it would be cool to see that at the small local level. I was just going to say that how do we do that now uh, on the on a small scale, you know? Well, and efficiently. Well, well, believe it or not, there was it was like a couple months back there was this one and none show mm-hmm. and believe it or not my drummer uh Seth Jacks. Yeah. And I hate saying this like i hate saying like oh my drummer seth is yeah. actually one of my best friends yeah i will say he is a best friend because i i talk to him often i see him often yeah i hang out with him often um he but he did an unknowns and he took visual aspects from his house that mm-hmm. he's used to writing music and jamming in that's awesome and he, and he transported them into the 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 front room of cast iron trading co <laughs> but um <laughs> Oh man, I think me and Amber just talked about that show <laughs> on the because you know I have the the other I don't know if you saw I started a, a second podcast. Yes, I did. It's called the Monthly Show, and okay. Amber was my first guest, and I think we definitely discussed an unknown show at Cast Irons with Seth. <laughs> well, oh well, when it comes to writing music, yeah, uh, Earl or I call. Folks call Seth Earl. That's kind of his. That's his middle name. Mm-hmm. But that's like a nickname most yeah. people give him. When it comes to like writing music, it's kind of like something. He's all over the map, man. Like he can come up with hip hop. Yeah. He can come yeah. up with R and B sounding stuff. He can come up with like dance music. Mm-hmm. He can come up with like some aggressive, like hardcore sounding, yeah. like yeah. punk rock. Um, he's, he's beyond genre. He is beyond genre. <laughs> and I keep telling him he needs to put out an EP. And since this is being recorded, he needs to put out an EP. Yeah. We're calling you out, Seth. We're calling you out, <laughs> Seth. Put out an EP where he, he, and he should show all of his, yes. his sides, all of I'd his love facets. That. Yeah. But back to that unknown show, like mm-hmm. he, he did that. He yeah. brought the visual with the Sonic mm-hmm. and some people, dug it and appreciate it and they called it what it was it was performance art yeah and then some people were like uh <laughs> this is not what we're looking for yeah yeah but that's the cool thing about music it's mm-hmm. not always going to be what you're looking for yeah it doesn't so, always fit in the box it never does yeah. and i think as you know i appreciate it as a as on all levels as an artist mm-hmm. as a performer as a musician i i appreciate when things don't fit in and that's what I've always been kind of doing. Like for the years and years I've been playing music in Stockton and, you know, creating art and just kind of being involved with various aspects of the scene is like, I'm always about not trying to make things fit in, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, on this podcast, I think I have kind of a, a bad habit of always, uh, you know, repeating the same, same things over and over again, but it's just how I feel about stuff. But, uh, one, one thing I always do to my guests, I always say like, this is, this is when I met you. Um, but I, I seem to remember the first time meeting you was actually at a show that we played together with, uh, Michael Samaniego. Um, and, uh, it was me, you, uh, Michael, and I think it was as Fugue State, but it was a long time ago. Um, and Billy might have played as well. Uh, but I remember him playing drums for you. I don't remember if maybe you played switched and played drums for him too, but it was a while ago. It was probably it was when I was still in college, so it had to be over five years ago at Blackwater. Man, the a lot yeah. of a lot of those shows back in the, yeah. the, those days, like they kind of just blend together. But yeah, yeah, it, it it does sound like something I would do. But mm-hmm. I know that at some point, um, Michael did play drums for me, and but I've never played drums for him. It had to be someone else. Yeah, I, I, I had I might to be, be like Azariah. That. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I I don't think it was like he what it was just like you both were at the show and there was a drum set there and you were like, Hey Michael, come play for this, like one or two songs. And then you played your whole set as well separately. Oh, okay. But yeah, it was just a, it was just a good time that night because it really was like, I, I was not living in Stockton and you know, I would visit once every couple months and it was like definitely seeing the, the spark of this new like community that was like being built. And, and now I think is like, a very flourishing community um 
and you know, there's still a lot of room to grow, but, uh, I don't know. It's just really cool seeing like people that I hadn't met before. Cause I've, been, I've been in Stockton, um, and playing music since I was like in high school. Um, but oh, yeah, oh, just, you've told me, you've, yeah. you've told me some stories. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, I have some stories. I've probably told them all on the podcast by now. Cause we've had a lot of like old, I don't want to say old, but you know, Stockton, Stockton friends from a long time ago talking about like caffeine den and like everyone has like a story of when they first met meta you know and and uh i feel like we've literally mentioned meta on every single podcast um yeah do you know meta of (laughs) course what come on man whoever doesn't know who meta good one is whether you you live in stockton or modesto if you've played in the central valley yeah you or for a period of time you definitely ran into or interacted with Mita Goodwin, mm-hmm. and uh, Mita is Mita is one of the most genuine human beings I ever met. Definitely, he's very yeah. he's very much a a guy who who's solid about what he's doing, and yeah. and he's very clear that he supports music, he supports artists. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy because sometimes when I gig in Modesto, mm-hmm. Mita will appear out of nowhere. Yeah, and he's like, "How you doing?" Like what's going on? Like, Oh my God, you're still playing. I'm like, yeah, I'm still playing. I'm like, you're still here. This is crazy. Yeah. If there ever was a supporter of like music and the arts, it's meta, you know? Yes, definitely. Definitely. But, um, I, I would say like in terms of like being in the Stockton scene, I'll, I'll kind of make this clear to everybody, Mm -hmm. even though I've been, playing in the scene i would honestly say for eight years yeah um i'm still a newcomer in terms of like that portion of the history like seaford center yeah and caffeine den sure. and the early plea for peace days mm-hmm. i kind of came in when like just after the market crash so yeah plea was starting to go away mm-hmm. um some of the scene shows like the emo and the scene shows started stopping. Yeah. Yeah. All the house shows started kind of coming down Mm -hmm. and then everything was kind of like seeping back into the underground. Yeah. So I came in when the scene was kind of like, it was, it was kind of dark. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Especially like the post post plea for peace days. Uh, unfortunately, like I, I, again, I wasn't living here, but you know, I'd come back and I'd try to see what was going on with, with my friends who were still playing music here. And, you know, the the band that I um, Los Beekeepers we've been a band for a long time we've never like you know we've only taken breaks because there wasn't stuff going on around here or um, you know we were working on recording or something like that and uh, yeah it definitely was like post plea for peace was just kind of like dark times you know it's like uh, what's it called uh, tumbleweeds it kind of was like mostly during that time. I remember like plea closed down and then a few weeks later the last open mic at Blackwater when Linda ran it. Oh yeah, Blackwater closed down around the same Blackwater time. Blackwater closed down it? around the same time. And then a few months later the bus stop opened up. So yeah. Rachel, Rachel Green took over the lease. Mm-hmm. She changed it into the bus stop. Yeah. And um it kinda it had the Blackwater feel, but it wasn't the Blackwater Cafe mm-hmm. of of old. Yeah. It, was, yeah. it was definitely something different. But mm-hmm. Rachel was very kind and respectful and mm-hmm. open to having like live music happening. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um I am grateful for uh for what she what she did for the scene. And, sure. a, and a lot of folks don't remember that time, but I remember mm-hmm. it very clearly. Yeah. But yeah, she was the one of the first venue owners to allow me to put on a show. Oh, nice. And my first show ever, Mm -hmm. I had literally 10 bands on the bill. Oh, man. 10 bands. Do you remember a few of them? I remember all of them. Let's do it. Go through it. Okay. So Satan Riders. Oh, yeah. Melted. Mm -hmm. X Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. Chip Douglas. Paranoid Drags. um, My band, Good Luck, Bad Fortune. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see. Come on. Who else played that night? Like, it was crazy. I yeah, say yeah, it, it sounds like lot, it. It was a lot of like bands. some hardcore bands in there. Some it was some just like rock experimental stuff. It was a true mixed genre bill. Yeah, and the reason why, like, not a lot of people. I asked Monster Treasure to play, mm-hmm. but yeah, um, Rachel and Brianna dropped. Yeah, and 
it was it was kind of like one of those things where that night was so crazy because I showed up and God bless his soul, Chris McClure was there. Yeah, was he playing in any of the bands that night? I feel like no. maybe three of them at least. No, I'm just kidding. No, well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. I, like, I don't think we've talked about Chris McClure yet on this podcast, but I just want to say, like, he is a supporter of the scene as well. Like, oh, I know he doesn't man. live here anymore, but, like, I think when Mitta, around the time when Mitta moved to Modesto, mm-hmm. Chris was here keeping stuff alive. He yes, was he doing was. a lot of booking. Um, I had this website. I, I still own the website, but I don't do anything with it. It's called jerkindy.com. I remember jerkindy, yeah. yes. And, and Chris, like, I just did the, the technology to make sure it was there. Chris was the like power behind the throne. Chris was the one posting all the shows, keeping that list updated, and Booking I was all the bands. yeah, I was yes. living in the Bay Area, and I'd log on, and I'd be like, "Sweet, there's a ton of stuff happening in Stockton." Like, made my heart warm. Um, I'd love to do that again if anyone's listening and wants to do a, a show listing site with me. I'm I'm trying to to do that again, but you yeah. should probably talk to Corey Baxter about. Yeah, that. yeah, I think I will on uh, <laughs> um, what's it uh, Wednesday. The unknown show, yeah. Cool. But yeah, uh, Chris McClure was yeah. there. And I remember the first band that night. Now I remember mm-hmm. like a couple of the other bands, but the yeah. first band that night was Hit Reset. Okay. So it was this guy named uh, Bruno Trellis. He's mm-hmm. from Antica. Mm-hmm. And um, Jeffrey Hollinsworth, the drummer of the Moans. Like now he's the drummer of the Moans mm-hmm. and, um, in Sacramento. So yeah. Danny Secretion's band. Okay. Yeah. I was like, it sounded familiar. Okay. But, um, yeah, they, they played mm-hmm. and I did not know how to turn on the PA. Like, oh no. <laughs> I, I did not know how to turn on the PA. Um, I like crossed a bunch of wires together, like thinking about it. Like I think yeah. I made shit worse, oh, but, no. but, um, there was people there yeah. and then it was like my first time running a door. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I didn't know how to properly do it. So I'd go up to people and be like, hey, five bucks, five bucks, five bucks. And then mm-hmm. eventually I kind of got the flow, like stay outside. Yeah. Run, run the door that way. Yeah. And I remember later on that night, Frankie Soto mm-hmm. and uh, Justin of Craftsville show up. And Frankie was in Surf Club at the time. Justin was in Craftsville's. Melted was playing. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't let Justin in. Justin wanted to go in for free. And I was yeah. like, five bucks he's like what do you mean five bucks i was like five bucks dude like you gotta pay gotta pay the, the toll you gotta pay the toll and he got mad dude he got oh, he got pretty mad with me saying um he's like oh i produced your album like like do you know who i am i'm like no not really <laughs> i'm like because at that time i didn't know who he was yeah yeah and oh. but that night was crazy um the bus stop made a bunch of money mm-hmm. uh i knew rachel was happy yeah. Um, I hope I wasn't too much of a, but I remember just booking that date. It like, since I had so many bands, I called her like three times in one night and was like, Oh, change it to this date, change it to this date. Oh, change no. it. It, I, I became one of those, but yeah. it, since it went off so well, um, at the end of it all, it was kind of worth it. But that was like my first show that I ever put on in Stockton. Awesome. And it kind of, I kind of caught the fever, not so much to book shows, mm-hmm. but more to play shows. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a great experience booking your first show and whether you want to continue doing that or not, you're, you're part of the community and like it gets you hooked in some way, you know, it did. And, um, through that night I met Chris and then of mm-hmm. course he was doing jerk indie mm-hmm. and um occasionally I, for the first couple of times I hit him up quite often but like okay as the year went by occasionally I hit him up and be like hey can I hop on this show because yeah. at the time I didn't have a band I mm-hmm. didn't know anyone in the scene to go start a band with yeah I was seriously a guy with an electric guitar and <laughs> a, a couple pedals and I just wanted to play like my songs yeah and he was totally open throwing me in front of like folk punk acts. Like mm-hmm. I remember playing for like Matt plus yeah. Francie moon. Nice. Um, I remember playing for, I remember playing one show. It was, it was like a weird odd show, but I remember that night, like the folks from pity party showed up. So it was Dustin and Sarah mm-hmm. Julian was in the band at the time. And I, I usually close a song with like a song involving a slide mm-hmm. and I left my slide at home. And mm-hmm. there was the 
the Parmesan shaker on the <laughs> counter and I straight up picked up the Parmesan shaker and like played my song with like a Parmesan shaker. That's so cool. And and I put it down and they were just like <laughs> like what the fuck? Like this dude is sick. And I became friends with with mm. those people too. Yeah. And I'm yeah. still friends with those people to this day. So awesome. it's like throughout that first year or a couple years in the scene, I made a lot of friendships that kind of build into like long-term friendships. Yeah. That, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of like you build this community, you build this, uh, I want to say community, like we're, we're part of this larger community, but you also build your own network really. Exactly, you know what I mean? Yeah. And th- these are the people that, you know, you want to support and the people that want to support you and, and they're part of your, your mini community really. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's what it's all about. Like there's so many different things so many different positive things that come from being a songwriter that it's not just being able to like here i've got these feelings that i need to express and this is my outlet and it makes me feel better when i do it but it's also like in doing that you also are like okay now i have to go put it out to the world and in doing that you make a bunch of like lifelong friends that you call every day or you send you have a group chat that you send memes to and you know um you kind of grow up together uh, exactly yeah yeah so cool um dude i uh i don't want to well i do want to switch gears actually a little bit yeah um, go for it go for it so I, i'm wondering if like if you can talk a little bit about your songwriting process like when there's nothing in your red notebook there's like a blank page and and no no like music or anything written yet and then what happened between then and you're like performing a a song at open mic or at a show? I go to bed. (laughs) You just go to bed and you wake up and the song's done. No, 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 no. (laughs) So it it was like a couple years back. I started reading, I started just kind of getting into like how like songwriters that I like Mm -hmm. wrote songs. Yeah. And, um, there's this one book, it's called the Isles of noise. Mm -hmm. And it had like interviews from Tom York, Johnny Marr, Mm -hmm. Paul Weller, like all the greats of Brit rock and pop all in one book. Mm -hmm. Um, and they talk about how do they write a song? Yeah. And the commonality between the three articles that I like really focused in on, which was Johnny Marr from the Smiths, Mm -hmm. amazing songwriter, amazing guitar player, uh, Tom York from Radiohead. Mm Mm-hmm. And ironically, Noel Gallagher. I was just going to say it was Noel in there. Noel was definitely in there. And honestly, his article was probably the best one. Nice. Because he he laid out his process from like beginning to end. Like, yeah. This is how I write a song. Yeah. But the commonality between those three people were they straight up said this, like, it shouldn't feel like work. Yeah. So I remember back during the Red Notebook days, mm-hmm. I'd just write songs. Yeah. And it never felt like work. The song would just happen. Yeah. So Nowadays, with life and a bunch of other stuff going on, Mm -hmm. I get kind of stressed. And whenever I write a song, it tends to turn into something that has to happen now. Yeah. So what I do is I literally go to bed. Mm -hmm. And ironically, lately, I've been waking up every morning Mm -hmm. and humming a melody. Mm -hmm. And I have a couple guitars in my room. So I pick up a guitar and I start thumbing out some chords. And Mm -hmm. I kind of write down the chords on the piece of paper and then the lyrics kind of come a little bit later. Yeah. Sometimes it's like an idea. Sometimes it's a dream. Sometimes it's a experience based around what happened that day. Mm-hmm. But that's how the song kind of happens. Yeah. And then from like book to open mic, it's just practice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so as, as you like um, are, are developing this song from, you get the the lyrical idea from like something that happened that day. Do you no- typically like sit down and the whole song is done or does that happen like over a few days? You're like, you get some word ideas and you play off that a little bit more. What's that, what's that process, right? Like of like crafting and maybe even editing words. So the, the process of crafting or editing, what I usually do is like I'd, I'd write out the whole idea. So yeah. the whole song. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just like one really long verse and a small chorus or yeah. chorus, verse, chorus, verse. Um, the structure always tends to change. But yeah. I write out the whole idea for the song and then I kind of play the melody or the chords behind it, see mm-hmm. how it sounds, see how it feels. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't work, I kind of scrub that idea. So I kind of throw that page out. Yeah. And then I start from scratch again. I mm-hmm. come up with new words and new courses. And sometimes it's like me 
I also have this bad habit of watching TV while I'm doing all this. Oh, interesting. So I'm watching like yeah. some random movie on Netflix mm-hmm. and then like a, a pivotal thing happens in the scene yeah. and I just write it down in the notebook. Nice. And then from there, I just think of like the characters and their lives and mm-hmm. what type of scenario they're in. And I kind of just write out the song from that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um. So w- when you're like coming up with uh, with lyrics and drawing inspiration, whether it's from like a TV show or um, or or something, would you say that you're um, you're looking for things that uh, maybe mirror real life or or an emotion that you're going through, like trying to find something that inspires you to express that emotion, or are you maybe just looking for a good story that you feel like will fit the music that you've written? It's a little bit of both Mm -hmm. because, um, of course, I want the songs to kind of connect Yeah, on on the broad sense. Like, I want people to listen to it and kind of take something away from it. Sure. But sometimes it it isn't within a good story. So sometimes I I think of a scenario and some Mm -hmm. characters and a narrative and, and turn it into a song. Yeah. But the the whole main thing for me is kind of like there has to be some sort of takeaway. Mm-hmm. Even if I wrote a song for myself, I still want someone else to listen to it and go, you know, I kind of got something out of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the things that, that I really enjoy as a songwriter, too. And, and even when I was younger and aspiring to be a songwriter, even even if I, you know, wasn't writing yet, um, I love listening to music and being able to connect with it and i always wanted to be on the other side of that as well you know yeah i i I think that's the i think that's why we kind of do it yeah yeah we we want to connect with other people whether we're in a a hardcore band Mm -hmm. whether we're 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 doing singer songwriter sets whether you know we're making like you know crazy like 8-bit sounding noise yeah under a wall of like delay <laughs> and reverb and all that stuff it's yeah. like we want people to connect with it yeah and to feel with it and i think that's like the overall goal as a songwriter you yeah. kind of want people to kind of come together yeah you're trying to pull or evoke some emotion out of someone and and I like what you said about like whether it's some 8-bit noise because um, I've been to like uh, I, um, I play with Novocaine. That's Meta's noise band. Have you ever seen Novocaine? No, I've um, heard so many things. Yeah. So. I mean, it's like it's like a once a year, once every three years type thing. But um, we went to this thing this year called Sacramento or no, I think it was called NorCal Noise Fest in Sacramento. And, you know, there were people that were up there doing like chip tune or like, you know, it was just like they had electronics and they were manipulating them to make what some people might say like were like awful noises or cacophonous even, you know, like cacophonous isn't quite, doesn't have to be awful, but it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I feel like. I really connect with noise musicians in the sense that like maybe it's not something lyrical that you can go like, Oh, I identify with that lyric because like, yeah, I've been sad too. Or yeah, I've had problems with this thing too, but it's more like, it's more like, um, shock art in a way where it's like, this is making me feel a way. And I don't know why this is making me feel happy. And I don't know why this is making me feel sad. This is making me feel angry. Um, and I think there's something about like, uh pure noise music or even instrumental music that can do that to you uh you know that i i believe in that as well Mm -hmm. and it didn't really hit me until i was i was in this band a couple years back called the arbiters of faith Mm -hmm. and uh my drummer at the time this guy named ivan he's an amazing musician he has Mm -hmm wonderful taste (laughs) he um and when i say wonderful taste i don't mean sarcastically i mean like if you think of any sort of genre of music, he has an album perfectly picked out. That's awesome. And it kind of encompasses what this is all about. Yeah. He got me into shoegaze. Mm-hmm. And he, I, I started listening to like Slow Dive. Yeah. Um, My Bloody Valentine. Mm-hmm. Early Blur. Yeah. Like, and. I love all Blur. Oh. It's one of my favorite Brit rock bands. Blur is. Yeah. Blur is a treat. Yeah. <laughs> Most people know song too, but blur yeah. blur overall is a treat. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you Park sh- Life and 
boys and girls and all, Park all the pop stuff. All I love the pop stuff. I love, honestly, I love the rock stuff because yeah. you don't hear enough of that when you, when people think of Blur. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Blur and then definitely Ride. Mm-hmm. I got super into Ride. Like mm-hmm. that's like, like my number one band from that era of, nice. of Brit pop and Brit yeah. rock. Yeah. But, um, back to my bloody Valentine, Kevin Shield said that the reason why he came up with all these sounds and these textures mm-hmm. and he was using all these effects was he was trying to create the same euphoric feeling you get when you're like on drugs or LSD mm-hmm. where it physically changes your brain chemistry. Yeah. And the reason why it's so loud is because when your brain perceives a certain amount of volume, mm-hmm. it starts that change, that reaction. Yeah. So he's like, you know, for the people who can stand being in our shows for that long, mm-hmm. you you feel you feel this this euphoric feeling wash over you. Yeah. So the idea of pure noise creating like mm-hmm. a euphoric feeling. Or, yeah. Yeah. Know, it doesn't have effect. to be just a bad feeling from pure noise. It can be, you know, a euphoric feeling or something like, like you described. Exactly. And I, you know, there's certain, I, I get that feeling when I listen to believe it or not, like, like doom metal or, mm-hmm. so, or oh, stone yeah. rock. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know something about Octafuzz. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, definitely. Now that you mentioned, I never made that connection, but I would say like some like doom metal or sludge or whatever you want to call it that has that like Octafuzz sound and like even like the slowness sometimes when they're, if they're playing in halftime, kind of reminds me of shoegaze. It it, it does right. This is like you know it's on the other side of the pond. Yeah, and it's coming from like the the deep dark depths of like (laughs) the Mojave desert in Southern California. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I think of Caius and like the stuff they were doing, like on blues for the red sun, like Mm -hmm. you listen to that music and it just puts you in a headspace where you're just like, yeah, this is, this is fucking (laughs) insane, dude. Like, and like the tangents, they go like with, with the riffs and with the use of their effects, like they were using, like wah fuzz mm-hmm. and a little bit of delay, but yeah. it's like they created this wall of sound, mm-hmm. and you just get lost in it. And at the end of the album, you just feel like that's what exactly what I needed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that, um, man. I'm gonna have to listen to some more like Doom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Doom. Uh, honestly, I think that's one of the biggest. That's kind of also one of the reasons why I kind of got into effects. Yeah. And why, ironically, my band is named Static Symphony mm-hmm. because Static Symphony means noise music. Yeah. So. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I was actually going to like uh, ask ask you to like talk a little bit more about your like the because I don't want to call it current project because I feel like Static Symphony has been a thing for a little bit now. You know, it's not I mean, it is current, but it's not new per se. Right. Um. I would say that it's on its second leg of life. Oh, okay. So it kind of started uh, back in like, I think 2015. Mm-hmm. So it was like my second year at Sac State mm-hmm. and uh, Bob the Lame. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. He, he was in Kismet Aura. And at the time, Kismet Aura broke up. Mm-hmm. So Bob had his annual Bob Fest yeah. blowout at his house and mm-hmm. he needed a band and he wanted to participate and he hit me up out of nowhere and he's like, Hey, you want to play the show with me? Like, or you want to start jamming? So whenever his house started jamming and then mm-hmm. he threw it on me like, Hey, I got the show coming up. I need a guitar player. Like you down. Yeah. yeah. And then kind of playing with Bob, he kind of got me into like, like newer garage rock, like the OCs mm-hmm. and, you know, pink and Brown and Ty Seagull. And, mm-hmm. you know, he kind of like morphed my head into like playing garage rock. Yeah. And, you know, after a while, he didn't want to use the Kismet or a moniker. So I thought of, you know, he's mm-hmm. like, I'm into like noise music and, Interesting. and noise rock and yeah. stuff like that. And I'm just I didn't like, know Static Symphony was an off, uh, what do you call that? Like, a, I don't want to call it an offshoot, but it kind of grew out of Static, uh, as Kismet Aura then, right? I, I wouldn't say it's a, it was kind of like, like if, Bob was the meat. I was the seasoning and spices around. Me. We'll, <laughs> I like we'll, that. We'll put it that way. Okay. But it, uh, it was definitely like my baby in the mm-hmm. sense that he was like, all right, you, at that time, Bob didn't want to be like a core part of a project. So he yeah. was like, you write the songs, I'll play yeah. drums. 
Yeah. And I was like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. You write the songs, I'll play drums. Mm -hmm. And it kind of just went from there. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. But we've, but Static Symphony is on its second leg of life. And Mm -hmm. the, the second time around, Seth hit me up. And this was after I was in Arbiters of Faith, like mm-hmm. the the end of that band's cycle wasn't really pleasant. Yeah. And I was at a point where I felt like I wanted to stop playing music. Oh, man. I wanted to. I hate that. I, I seriously wanted to. I was seriously at the point where I was going to go into music around, mm-hmm. sell all my guitars, sell all oh. my pedals, sell my amp and just. Man. And just just go live my life. Man. There, you know, what's interesting, <laughs> too, before we go too far, I've talked to a lot of musicians that even have been on the show that have gotten to that point too. They're like, I was just going to give it up. I was done, you know, and I'm glad that everyone didn't. Yeah. I mean, I think we all hit that point artistically. Mm -hmm. Like we hit a, a moment of why, like, Mm -hmm. like, why do we still, why are we doing this? Like, this is crazy. Yeah. But no, I was at that point because Mm -hmm. I was in a band for like a year with, with some really great musicians. And on top of that, they were like really close friends and, Mm -hmm. Um, we didn't put out anything. We didn't like we recorded, but we didn't put out those recordings. Those recordings are still on my laptop. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, yeah, we didn't put out anything. We, whenever we tried a gig, it didn't Mm -hmm. work out. That's, that's too bad. So it was, it was just one of those things where I was just like, what's the point of being putting effort into something? Yeah. And there's no, you put a lot into it and there's no return. There's no return. And At that time, I even though it was very selfish of me to think that way, mm-hmm. I was just like, that really sucks. Yeah. And then it was like around May, Seth hit me up and he was like, hey, dude, like, how's it going? I'm like, <laughs> uh, been better. Yeah. And he's like, you want to start, you want to jam? I was like, okay. So go over to Seth's house and we jam. And then out of nowhere, he's like, hey, but, you know, do you know how to play while and out still, which was a static symphony song. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I remember that it was, you know, and I go into the riff and then he comes in with the drums. And then I was like, okay, do you remember this song? And we play a groove with me. And, you know, I show him a couple songs that I wrote when I was in the arbiters. And yeah. that's when, mm-hmm. you know, static symphony rose from the dead. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. It's like a, a phoenix, like the phoenix rising. You know, it's something that you thought you'd put away. Exactly. And then some something, some outside force that Seth was, you know, was like, no, man, this this has got to happen again. It, yeah, he, he, and that's exactly what he said. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he's like, I, I really, he said, I love these songs and I would like to play them with you. Yeah. And when you work with a person like Seth, who's very straightforward, easygoing, you know, he'll, anything you put on the table, he'll run with it. Um, how could you say no? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I just want to compliment you guys. Like, uh, I feel like I, unfortunately I didn't get to see like earlier versions of static symphony. So I only know the Seth and, and geo version, but you guys work together very well. And like, you definitely pull off duo, which I think, is hard i think this is coming from me as someone who loves like uh, bass players (laughs) it's hard to pull off a duo you know what i mean um Mm -hmm. especially with electric guitar you know what i mean like duos like acoustic duos are um you know i I think that works out sometimes but elect like you definitely pull it out and i don't know what the magic sauce that you have is but um but like it's awesome the magic sauce is having a massive pedal board <laughs> with the ABY switcher. But honestly, you know, the three years me and Seth have been yeah. playing together, it's all very intuitive. Yeah. Like it's it's at the point where I just give him a look and he mm-hmm. knows a change is coming. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what it really is. Like the the sonic uh, creations that come out of your pedal board and your guitar and your amps, that that is one thing and it is important. But I definitely think that like, you guys as like uh, collaborators, uh, you do it really well. And and that's the thing too. It's it's a true collaboration because when I started playing with Seth, we, mm-hmm. we had three simple ground rules. Rule one was no matter what happens, 
to us as artists or as musicians or as a band or mm-hmm. as this collaboration, we'd always be friends. That's awesome. We yeah, always like important. We always maintain our friendship. Yeah. The second rule was that we would never take a gig or never do something the other person didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. Over time, that rule kind of flexed and changed slightly, yeah. but it's still at basically if he wasn't on board with an idea, I would not be on board. Yeah. And vice versa. Like if I wasn't on board with an idea, he would be like, no, this isn't good. Yeah. I think more bands need to adopt that, that rule or something like it. Cause the, uh, you know, it's rough when they don't. And I think the, the third rule, it's kind of like an unspoken rule, yeah. but it's kind of like something that is mutual between us. It's like me and Seth both have our like moments where, we kind of want to do our own thing and kind yeah. of go off and do our own thing. And yeah. sometimes I, you know, sometimes I feel like the overbearing mother. I'm like, mm-hmm. is everything going to be okay? But yeah. the good thing about Seth is that he's, he's, he's an awesome human being and he's loyal in the sense that, you know, if, if he isn't feeling a commitment, mm-hmm. you will know right away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love that kind of like idea of these like, ground rules um i always compare being in a band to being in a romantic relationship a marriage yeah because because <laughs> it, it really is all about like honesty and trust and communication and i think like your rules really like highlight that and and it, it really is like a marriage where like you you both have to be on board or or no one is on board you know what i exactly. mean exactly and uh man that's beautiful i love that thank you yeah but the another thing that a lot of people ask is, mm-hmm. you know, when I started playing music, I was a bass player. I still mm-hmm. very much am a bass player. I yeah. love awesome sounding bass lines. Yeah. And a lot of the bands that I listen to are either power trios or mm-hmm. four piece bands. Um, some of my favorite bands are duos. Yeah. But um, at the end of the day, I love bass players. But yeah. the reason why we don't have a bass player is because when you're when it comes to practice yeah. or gig or putting something out or just even like a response, it's easier when yeah. it's one person. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel that my, my band, Los Beekeepers, has four people in the band. And uh, there have been times when we had five people in the band. <laughs> and right now, actually, we do have a fifth person uh, starting to play with us a little bit. And the hardest part is scheduling, you know? Yeah. I, I think that the, the first important thing when you have multiple members beyond two is communication. Exactly. Like communication is more important, but then like, then trying to schedule all those people based on like their work and their family. And like, we're all, everyone's getting older and, you know, kids and all of that stuff. So it does get hard, but I, I definitely understand the like, keep it small and you'll, you know, be able to schedule stuff easier and etc exactly like you know i i don't want people to feel like oh these guys feel like they're too cool to have a bass player that's not the case it's just that it's just way easier with two people and the the project that i was in beforehand we had five members oh yeah (laughs) like i said i feel that pain we had five members in 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 arbiters it was me robert ivan sean uh yeah our friend chantel and uh, we had a rotating bass player mm-hmm. so it was just, they just like, spun around in circles i'm just kidding <laughs> sorry i had to get a dad joke no, in it's fine it's fine <laughs> yes they spun around in circles and created a tornado yeah um but after being in a band with five people yeah. like i was just like i'm totally on board with like being in a two-piece yeah yeah i understand that but th- i mean there is a trade-off though because i want to i do want to like stand up for uh my band members just saying that like <laughs> We, you know, we play maybe one or two shows a year and it's awesome and it's fun and we get together in between those shows and sometimes we don't practice until the day of the show, but like they're so solid and great people that like, it it doesn't matter. We could have time apart and when we're together, that's all that matters, you know, and um, it's also worth it sometimes when you get five people, like we were practicing with um, this guy, Sean um who's kind of like a a fifth beetle for us now and um after everyone left melanie was like oh man it sounded so good with sean like you guys should do that more it sounded so good like i know (laughs) right uh dude um would you be down to play like a song or two like a lot like a kind of like in studio performance of anything 
well this is sudden but <laughs> yeah sure okay cool yeah. Um, yeah, what we'll do is we'll stop this recording and then I'll set up some different mics and we'll figure out what you want to play. But, um, before then, is there like, uh, anything you could tell the listeners of this podcast about like where they could find you and interact with you on the internet or anywhere else you want to meet up with people? I'm literally everywhere. I'm just (laughs) joking. Um, yeah, I'm nowadays I've been using Instagram a lot, so yeah. that's the best place to find me. So Instagram, uh, my handle is at pizza guy p i z z h e y underscore blues, and um, also Static Symphony C A. That's the other handle that you might find me on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a nice person. I don't bite. If you want to shoot a DM, that's cool. <laughs> I love talking about gear, so. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. Yeah. This song is called Berlin Lights. I don't know why it's called Berlin Lights, but it's called Berlin Lights. Okay, so this uh, next tune is called Does It Even Matter?
Does it even matter? 